Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction in the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Speaker Pelosi goes to Taiwan. OPEC goes small in response to President Biden's plea for more oil. And central banks, they go big in the struggle to tame inflation. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, contributors Larry Summers of Harvard on higher rates and lower employment and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors on what the Inflation Reduction Act could mean for Wall Street. So I think this is good for investors in that it brings, again, some stability to fiscal policy in Washington. It was a week full of signaling as Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan to send a signal to China about U.S. commitments. Today, our delegation, which I'm very proud, came to Taiwan to make unequivocally clear we will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan and we are proud of our enduring friendship. While China sent back its own signal of displeasure with the visit. We will do what we say, and let me say that these measures will be firm, strong, and effective. And OPEC Plus responded to President Biden's request for more production by increasing its limits, but by a very modest 100,000 barrels a day, which Amos Hochstein of the State Department said was nice, but not enough. 
the importance that the president has is not discussing barrels with, with any country. He has been very clear that he wants to see oil prices come down and he wants to see gasoline prices come down. But it wasn't just geopolitics this week. We also spent a fair amount of time getting signals from our central banks. Whether it was the Bank of England on Thursday raising rates 50 basis points as they battle even higher inflation. CPI inflation is now expected to peak at just over 13% in Q4 of this year and to remain at very elevated levels throughout much of 2023. Our various Fed members all week long trying to walk back Chair Powell's statement from last week that we were close to the neutral rate. We are a long way away from achieving an economy that is back at 2% inflation, and that's where we need to get to. And then, then came Friday, and boy, did we get a signal with jobs numbers coming in twice what was expected, a full 528,000 people. And June was revised up as well, with wages increasing at an annual pace of 5.2%. Not surprisingly, this gave the bond market yet another abrupt turn, and the 10-year yield, which had dropped to near 2.5% earlier in the week, shot up again to end the week at 2.83%. And while equities were volatile, they weren't as bad as bonds, with the S&P 500 ending the week up just over one-third of a percent, while the Nasdaq moved back toward bull territory, at least for a time, ending the week up over two percent. Here to help us sort through yet another challenging week for the economy and for the markets, we welcome Mona Mahajan. She is Chief Investment Strategist at Edward Jones and Senior Markets Editor for Bloomberg, John Author. So welcome both of you to Wall Street. Good to have you here. Mona, let's start with you. And certainly those jobs numbers really got our attention on Friday. We're really dominant. What did they tell the markets? Yeah, look, David, it's hard to uh, really say that we're in a recessionary environment with jobs going uh, increasing over 500,000 uh, 500, this month. Now, keep in mind, the U.S. economy has started here from a position of strength. So while we could see weakening in the jobs figures, in economic, in earnings data, in the months ahead, uh, we certainly are nowhere near what we'd call an economic downturn or recessionary environment. Now, now, what were the market implications of this move? Well, you touched on some of them, but one thing we saw right off the bat, the expectations of a 75 basis point Fed rate hike uh, really skyrocketed between yesterday and today. Yesterday's probability, 35%. Today, we have a 65% probability of a 75 basis point rate hike again by the Federal Reserve in September. The second thing we saw was, of course, those yields. So Treasury yields both on the 10-year and the two-year. Now, keep in mind, the two-year tends to be a proxy of what the Fed may do in the next couple of years or so. Uh, both skyrocketed higher, um, but we continue to have what we call an inverted yield curve. So historically, this inverted yield uh, curve does uh, provide a leading indicator of a recessionary environment, but it, there is some lag to it, six to 18 months. So net-net, we saw a market that absorbed uh, this higher jobs figure, absorbed a potentially more aggressive Fed. Um, but what we did see under the surface was that some of those growth parts of the market, longer duration, tech, speculative, higher valuation parts of the market, did underperform again today. And that might be a theme we see going forward as well. So John Others, you follow central banks all around the world all the time, including the Federal Reserve. Did the Friday numbers make the Fed's already difficult job harder or did it make it easier? I think it made it easier. Um, they are uh, people, I don't think myself that Powell tried to be that dovish last week. I think he meant to give the uh, impression that he was con still very much uh, committed to a more hawkish series of, uh, of rate hikes. He was open to the, uh, the uh, claim that he was just not 
credible for a while. The number of people who are convinced that the Fed will have to turn turn around swiftly because the economy will be too weak yeah, has been strong. That's been why we've had this you know, really remarkable fall back down in yields. Uh, and with numbers like that, it's very hard to criticize them for uh, tightening rates. There's Obviously, the, the employment picture could scarcely be stronger. Thank you so much to John Authors of Bloomberg and Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones. They're going to be staying with us as we took a look at what else may be driving the markets, particularly in geopolitics and where those markets may be headed. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, China did some saber rattling versus the U.S. Where does China fit in your thought process in the future? Are there any significant investment implications with what's going on in China? Well, in my group, I think that China is the biggest potential growth vehicle for Boeing. Uh, two years ago, Boeing delivered about 16% of their total aircraft output went to China. It slipped down a little bit the last two years, but we anticipate, say, as we get back to the turn of the century, it could go 16 to 20%. 
That was Michael Holland and Peter Esseritis on Wall Street Week back in 1996. And once again this week, China was in the news with Speaker Pelosi's controversial trip to Taiwan and China's rather strong reaction, which certainly caused a geopolitical stir. But did it have any effects on the markets or potential effects on the global economy? Here to help us answer those questions and more are Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones and Bloomberg's senior markets editor, John Arthur. So, John, you actually wrote a column earlier this week noting the bond market reaction, apparently in part to Nancy Pelosi's visit. But do you think it has longer-term ramifications? I, I, I fear it has very much greater longer-term uh, ramifications, and I'm a little concerned both how quickly the bond market got worried. We had a brief period of not much more than 24 hours when there was really quite intense demand for Treasuries born on you know, the classic desire for a safe haven. Uh, and more or less as soon as Nancy Pelosi's plane had landed in Taiwan without the Chinese trying to shoot it down, uh, I'm only slightly exaggerating, uh, the, the market rebounded as though uh, everything was everything was okay. Um, and certainly the degree of saber rattling we're seeing at present from China is quite concerning. Uh, it's conceivable that this speaker's trip has in some way called China's bluff. Uh, I'm not a military strategist, but plenty of people are pointing out that uh, um, Taiwan is an island 100 miles away from China. It will make, um, you know, Russia couldn't make a good job of invading Ukraine. China actively invading Taiwan is going to be orders of magnitude harder. Um, so whether arguably the risk of a, a total breakdown and return to conflict is, uh, is still quite slim. Um, but <laughs> there, there, there's no question. If this leads to a, a serious worsening in U.S.-Chinese relations from where they are now, or which right. we must all hope not uh, outright conflict, that's very serious. That's any any way you look at it, that's going to be bad. Mona, what about your perspective? And not just limited to China. We have an awful lot of geopolitics going on, as John just referred to briefly in various respects. Do you think geopolitics is affecting the markets right now? Or do they have enough to worry about whether it's inflation or whether it's supply chains or whether it's the Fed? Yeah, you know, David, this year we, we actually got an outsized amount of geopolitics impacting markets directly, of course, starting with that Russia-Ukraine conflict, um, which not only kind of exacerbated the inflationary problems, but uh, really put upward pressure on oil, energy, grain prices uh, across the globe. And then, of course, uh, we did shift some focus to China, but uh, because of the lockdowns and the on and off lockdowns created tensions in supply chain, created uh, some demand reopening and then uh, shutting down once again. And then, of course, uh, with Nancy Pelosi's trip this week, uh, we started to think about maybe another tail risk emerging in geopolitics, which is uh, the China-Taiwan uh, situation, which could potentially, at least in an investor's mind, could be a, a Russia-Ukraine 2.0. And, and keep in mind, the implications would be quite a bit more severe. Um, supply chains and inflationary pressures, again, could be exacerbated to, to more even more extreme levels. So for now, in our view, we think it's a tail risk, uh, but certainly one that's worth monitoring and certainly one that we're watching could intensify in headlines if we see, you know, another similar type of uh, trip negotiation discussion. Um, but hopefully for now, a tail risk that has a, a lower probability than um, certainly what we saw in Russia and Ukraine. So Mona, translate into some investment advice, if you would, here. Does that mean if I'm an investor for my portfolio, I should look at more defensive investments, whether that's equities or debt? 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, in the near term, so look, we've had a great run, um, rebound off the lows of mid-June uh, across equity markets and even in fixed income. So uh, in equities, we've seen the, the S&P rally nearly 13%. Underneath the surface, the growth parts of the market, technology, et cetera, are up nearly 20%. Um, similarly, fixed income rebounded off lows as well. Now, going forward, if we start to see yields move higher, you know, we've had a really nice move downward in yields. But keep in mind, we still have the Fed in play. We still have quantitative tightening in play, which could put upward pressure in yields. If that occurs, uh, we could probably once again see growth start to underperform or lag again. So in our view, as we get through the next few months, as those earnings and economic data uh, perhaps start to soften, catch up with what we've seen in equity markets earlier this year, we would advise a a more defensive tilt, um, value-oriented defensive sectors and equities and fixed income. Um, But if and when we do get inflation kind of in earnest moving lower, um, the Fed in earnest able to pause, that's really when we see a pickup in risk assets, but perhaps a shift towards growth once again. And and that's when you'd start layering in and barbelling growth. But for now, we'd say uh, stay invested, stay perhaps somewhat defensive in the months ahead. So, So John, just overly simplistic here, briefly, does that mean I should have more bonds than I thought I should? That is a very difficult one. I I, I tend to be somewhat bearish on bonds. I think that uh, there is a risk that the the peak for the 10-year rate isn't in yet. Uh, And that that means that you probably don't want to pile too much too heavily into into bonds. My best guess, because all of us have to contend with the fact that that we don't really know the the, the the lack of good precedence for what happened to the world in 2020 means that there is also a lack of good precedence for what we should be expecting now. My best guess is that rates probably have to rise higher to choke off inflation. Uh, the rule of thumb is that um, inflation doesn't go down and uh, doesn't peak until uh, the interest rate exceeds the inflation rate. That implies that we're going to be going, I would say, above 4% at least. Uh, And that uh, would mean that you would want to be getting into uh, more defensive kinds of stocks that actually benefit from higher rates, which as Mona said is basically value. If you want it in terms of tail risk, there's this Machiavellian possibility of getting into chip makers that aren't from Taiwan. that happens there, then there, you know, there you there go. Suddenly, be a lot more scarcity of chips. Yeah, there, there you go. There's an interesting investment tip. Chip makers are not in Taiwan. Thank you so much to Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones and Bloomberg's own John Authors. Coming up, Democrats like their new reconciliation package. They call it the Inflation Reduction Act, and some economists, well, they like it too. But what would it mean for investors? We ask Steve Ratner of Will Advisors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is really a very comprehensive and historic piece of legislation. Joe Manchin, he made a terrible deal. Leave it to Congress to surprise us. Take two of our biggest problems, inflation. We have a serious inflation challenge, which is hitting economies around the uh, the globe. And climate. As the climate crisis gets worse, extreme weather will pose a rapidly growing danger to a rapidly growing number of communities. 
put them together in one big package and give it the attractive name of the Inflation Reduction Act. This bill will reduce inflationary pressures on the economy. In the end, it all came down to getting West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin to sign on. This is fighting inflation. This is all about the, the absolute horrible uh, position that people are in now because of the uh, inflation cost. And Senator Manchin's Republican colleagues like Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania can't believe he went along. It's a very significant corporate tax increase, mostly focused on manufacturers, which is a bad idea. It's combined with price controls on prescription drugs. I've been asking myself, what does Joe Manchin get out of this? But thus far, economists like Larry Summers think the Inflation Reduction Act may be just what the doctor ordered. I was glad to see the bill. I think it's going to reduce the rate of inflation because it's going to reduce deficits in demand over time because it's going to use the federal government's power to negotiate lower prices for pharmaceuticals and because it's going to increase uh, supply of energy. So economists really like the Inflation Reduction Act, but what does it mean for investors? To get an answer to that, we're going to turn to someone who invests a fair amount of capital. He is Stephen Ratner. He's chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. They invest the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael R. Bloomberg, who, of course, is our founder and majority shareholder. Steve, thanks so much for being back on Wall Street Week. Of course. Love to be here. So you wrote a terrific op-ed piece for The New York Times this week, uh, in which you said, and these are pretty strong words, I must say, you think that this may be one of the best packages that you can remember Congress giving birth to. So you think it's a good idea for the country. What does it mean for investors? I think for investors, it's, it's basically positive. I think we're making progress on a number of our really important problems, climate being first and foremost among them. That's good for the country. It's ultimately good for investors. I think prescription drugs may not, uh, pricing may not be absolutely great for every pharma company in America, but for the average American, it will eventually give them more spending power and therefore the ability to buy other things, and that helps the economy. The minimum corporate tax is just something we needed to do. I think the, uh, the Trump TCJA was so wildly unfair in terms of the amount of the business rollbacks that this brought back. I would note that after the Manchin proposal was very surprisingly announced, as you know, nobody thought this was coming, but after it was announced, the stock market in the next several days had several of its best days throughout this the difficult period. So obviously investors were not put off by this thing and indeed even encouraged by the idea of progress in Washington. One of the things Republicans uh, have picked on, for example, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, is to say that corporate minimum tax effectively would take some of the benefits away from the expensing of capital investment, will deter capital investment by corporations, ultimately hurt us in terms of investment and in terms of growth. Well, the first part of that is right. We are taking some incentives away, uh, although we're doing it, we're not really directly taking them away. We didn't roll back the depreciation provision. We simply put a minimum tax on all the corporate profits. So that, in fact, leaves most of the investment incentive in place. But there are those of us who felt that that was simply too much when it was passed, the TCGA. Why give companies 100% write-off up front? Is that really going to change investment that much? Is it really the way you want to run tax policy? And I don't think there's a lot of evidence that had much of an impact on investment. So I don't buy that. I think, I think the problem of investment here is there are not enough profitable opportunities out there, not that companies are worried about their tax rate or they don't have the cash or something like that. One of the aspects of this, obviously, is the inflation reduction because, as I understand it, of reducing the deficit, actually paying for it, having more in revenue than the costs going out. What does that do to investors? Well, first, on, on the inflation thing, 
Uh, the Republicans have created, I think, a false dichotomy in a way. They have ba they made the point or claimed this wouldn't really reduce inflation. And that's not untrue. Its impact on inflation in the first few years is relatively small. It gets a bit larger in the out years. But the most important thing is that it is a reversal of policy from the last several packages we've passed that have been highly inflationary. So I think this is good for investors in that it brings, again, some stability to fiscal policy in Washington for the first time in a long time, a fiscal policy package that actually does at least lean against inflation, even if the uh, total impact isn't enormous. If this package, and again, we're assuming for the moment that it gets enacted, uh, if it in fact gets enacted, is the benefit to investors mainly sort of the rising tide notion? I mean, it's the macro that everything goes up and so we're all better off. Or are there specific sectors that actually would be more attractive to investors, such as you mentioned, cl climate and energy? But yes, the rising tide is certainly the overarching part of this. It's not a complicated package. It doesn't have that many provisions in it. So it's really, it really is climate and prescription drugs and then obviously some of the tax stuff. Uh, so in climate, I don't think anyone yet has really been able to comb through all the little minutiae. Thank you so much. This is Stephen Ratter. He's the chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, we wrap up the week once again with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We end the week, as we always do, with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Let's address that big number that came out on Friday, 528,000 new jobs. Also, revision up in June. And by the way, wages up at a rate of 5.2% year over year. President Biden came out and said this shows that his economic policy is working. What did you make of those numbers? I think it's more mixed. I, I celebrate all the extra uh, jobs, and that's surely a good thing to see. But my principal concern, as you know, David, has been that we've got an overheated economy, and that if you overheat the economy longer and longer, you get more and more inflation and bigger and bigger problems down the road. And everything in this number says to me overheating, not yet under control, not on a path to being under control. So I was actually not gratified uh, by these numbers, but my concern was actually magnified. So what message does this send to the Fed, do you think? Look, I, I don't think the Fed has the thread right now. Uh, as I said on this show last week, I think the idea that we're at the neutral rate or near the neutral rate is not a defensible concept. And now when we're seeing wage inflation unambiguously after this number accelerating, after this number, after the ECI, after the Atlanta Fed, we have by every reasonable measure of core inflation, um, inflation running somewhere plus or minus uh, 5%. That is more than it was when Richard Nixon uh, put price controls in place. That is not acceptable by any dimension. And if we don't act on it and act strongly on it, and that means raising real interest rates uh, significantly, then we're just setting the stage for stagflation. Here's what I'm very worried about, because uh, we've seen the movie before. I'm worried and I was interested to see that Paul Krogman, who's hardly agreed with me in general on these things, expressed exactly this concern uh, today. I'm worried that we're going to see some good news on non-core inflation, on commodities, on what's happened in gasoline, for example, and we're going to see a bit of economic slowing, and that's going to lead the Fed to think that things are under control. But in fact, underlying inflation is going to be still completely unacceptable. Things are going to go up and down in terms of the non-core inflation. And if we've got a labor market that's red hot, that's only going to mean constant or even accelerating inflation. And we're going to have a situation like we did in the 1970s, where we perpetuated inflation by not doing enough to contain it. The doctor tells you to take all your medicine. If you take only some of your medicine, you're going to get the illness back. The bacteria are going to be resistant, and it is going to be worse. And that is the risk that I believe we are running in this situation uh, on the path that the Fed is predicting and on the path that the market is expecting. 
Another big piece of news this week came from that Inflation Reduction Act, which you talked about last week on the program, saying you were glad to see the bill. It's been adjusted in some ways to accommodate particularly Senator Sinema from Arizona. But as of right now, it looks like it may well pass the Senate this weekend and maybe be enacted next week. So what do you make of the bill as it looks now, the package as much as we understand it? This is really positive news. This is good news on health care. This is good news on the environment and energy. This is uh, good news on uh, tax reform. This is going to make our economy uh, better, while at the same time reducing the budget deficit and contributing, albeit in a small way, to a uh, reduction uh, in inflation. But it is a beginning, a very important beginning, not an end. We still have huge international tax loopholes that are driving businesses abroad. We still, shockingly, and this is something that really disappointed me, and I was sorry with the judgment that uh, Senator Sinema came to, we still have the carried interest loophole that is allowing many of the wealthiest Americans to pay taxes at a much lower rate than the people who clean uh, their floors by getting capital gains on what is really uh, earned uh, income. And it is uh, just wrong. And it makes me worry about our politics that it has lasted as long as it has. But look, that's for another day. For today, it's to celebrate that this is a good and important bill that is moving the country uh, forward. And I think it's a tribute to the perseverance of many, the perseverance in negotiating and negotiating and negotiating of Senator Schumer, of Senator Manchin, who many people have raised uh, questions about and who I don't agree about on everything, but who has stuck with some basic views he had about the importance of not adding to inflation for a year. And contrary to what many people said, was prepared to reach a deal if it was the right deal and stayed at the table. And above all, I think it reflects the fact that President Biden laid out an agenda. Larry, address one specific issue that's come up in the scoring, as it's called. Uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is bipartisan, came out and said that, in fact, uh, a fair amount of the tax burden would fall on people who make $400,000 or less. And I understand what that is. It's saying if the corporations are paying more tax, some of that is going to go to the employees and the, the regular consumers. What do you make of that argument? Is it true? I don't think it's very good economics. I think that the corporate share owners and other capitalists pay the vast majority of corporate taxes in general. And I think that's even more true with respect to corporate subsidies and loopholes. And it's corporate subsidies and loopholes that we're going after uh, as a consequence of uh, this. Uh, I think the vast, vast majority of Americans are happy to see the tax rate on companies like Amazon go up, and they're not worried that that means an increase in their taxes. They'd much rather see us, when we need tax revenue, as we do now, go after companies that year after year after year are reporting billions of dollars of profits to their shareholders and still not paying taxes. 
at a rate of even 15%. And that is all that this bill goes after. High profits to shareholders, no taxes. That's the right thing to do. Larry, thank you so very much. There's a special contributor here at Wall Street. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. All that glitters is not gold, but it might just be crypto. Remember those glory days of yesteryear, or at least the year before last, when money was cheap, the Fed was still cutting rates. Today, the FOMC kept interest rates near zero. And asset values had nowhere to go but up. We're near record highs. The stock market's making brand new record highs. Equities can continue to move higher. One of the hottest asset classes of the last few years was crypto, with Bitcoin peaking near $70,000 just after Mr. Powell announced his decision to cut rates again, making it just too good to resist for investors like Michael Saylor. We have to invest in something. And uh, we've chosen as a business strategy to fo focus on what we believe is the most exciting investment idea because it's a digital commodity that's absolutely scarce and only getting technically better every year. While Mike Novogratz told our own Eric Shasker it was as good as gold. It's a weapon in people's portfolio. It is a version of gold. We call it digital gold. And if retail investors needed any more reason to get on the crypto bandwagon, they got a not-so-subtle nudge from some of the biggest celebrities around. People like greatest of all time quarterback Tom Brady. I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? And Reese Witherspoon tweeting, quote, crypto is here to stay. And Steph Curry telling us he's not an expert, but that's not stopping him from trading crypto anyway. This is Steph Curry, the world's leading expert on cryptocurrency. I'm not. But that was then, and this is now. Inflation is up. We really need to restore price stability, get inflation back down to 2%. The Fed is on a tightening spree. Well, the message is that there will be continuing rate increases, although I think starting at the September meeting, as he said, it will be meeting by meeting. And crypto isn't looking like quite the sure thing it did to some, with Bitcoin down over 60% from its peak, leading people like Eddie Lowe of Maybank Singapore to lose faith. Crypto was actually touted as the alternative goal uh, when it was when Bitcoin was at 60,000. But I think now at 20,000 or below that, it is no longer really that valid. And that's even before we get to questions about what mining crypto is doing to our climate. Bitcoin community should see the biggest risk to Bitcoin is climate is getting worse, we see mm. the news every day, and Bitcoin is contributing to that. But never fear, Matt Damon is here, and we know that the characters he plays in the movies are nothing if not courageous. We can't stay here, it's not safe. But Damon also styles himself as brave, Adventure. at least according to this Crypto.com ad. Four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. I suspect that there just may be some crypto owners out there hoping that fortune catches up with Mr. Damon's bravery. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.